Well, good afternoon, everyone, and a very warm welcome. Len, hello. There's, um, there's one seat on the front row if you want to be keen, and there's a couple of seats in the second row over that side. Lovely. Um, my name's David Ison. I'm the Dean of St Paul's in my spare time, um, and it's great to be with you here today. As we begin, let's have some moments of quietness. For whatever we've been doing this morning, whether it's been in church or doing other things, to lay down our burdens, to open our hearts, our minds, our spirits, to learn and to grow. Lord, send us the gift of your Holy Spirit. Bless Selina as she speaks and us as we listen that we may grow in discipleship and follow you in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, just a one quick notice, which is there are a few of these sheets. I think Jen's been giving them to you as you came in largely, but this is the programme for the rest of the year. The brochure's not quite out yet. So this is next academic year's brochure from September to March. And if you'd like to check on that, uh, there are a few copies of that on the table, which if you'd like to grab some as you go out. Uh, it's great to be able to welcome Selina Stone to be with us this morning. Um, there is uh, there's some chairs over and that's... If you want to come, sir, if you, if you want to come around this way, there's a... Oh, can you, can you get to the middle? There's a couple of chairs over on the side there as well. Um, Selina's title is Tutor and Lecturer in Political Theology at St. Melitus College, which is quite a mouthful, really. Um, but she's here to help us think about uh, was Jesus political? I don't know if you've heard the, the trailer that's happening uh, on Radio 4 at the moment for a, a comedy program on politics where Hugh Dennis knocks at the door of somebody's house and um, says, uh, uh, um, can I talk to you about politics, ma'am? And she says, I'm not political. And he says, but you've got a conservative poster in your window. Yes, that's right, I'm not political. <laughs> um, so it'll be interesting to see how that unpacks in terms of what Selena's going to say to us. Selena was born and raised in Birmingham um, in an area with a great sense of community. Uh, she engaged with the questions that her parents had, which helped her on her journey of theology and about faith. She did an MA in Theology at King's College London. Uh, she's worked for the Centre of Theology and Community in the East End, and before that in Parliament and as a community organiser in Brixton. And her community organising involved running local campaigns, training leaders and developing congregations to engage in issues of social justice affecting local people. So I hope she's going to be speaking to us from both her own experience and also her reflections, theological reflections, on what this means and what it could mean for us in our discipleship today. So could you please welcome Selina Stone. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you. It's nice to see you all. To take on this question, was Jesus political? Um, when I first moved to London five years ago, I remember I came to do a placement in East London in Bethnal Green with a vicar called Adam. And the church had been involved with community organising for a long time. 
And on my first day there, we were walking around East London, he was telling me all about his community. And he said to me, oh, what do you think, Selena, about you know, the church and public life? And I was very unconvinced about these two things coming together. And I said something, I mumbled something to him about, oh, I think they should just be separate because it gets too messy. Um, and knowing, of course, because he'd been in organising quite a long time, he knew that my opinion would probably change. But I had been quoting something I'd seen on the news earlier that week, where somebody had quoted the scripture in a way that I thought was particularly offensive and embarrassing and totally useless. And on the basis of that, I had said, I don't think churches and politics should really mix. But actually, it's through my journey of engaging more with issues of justice that I've been convinced that my initial feeling about this was incorrect. And the evidence that I had for my feeling that these two things should be separate seemed quite clear to me. Um, and even recently, we've seen this in the news in recent times. Uh, Jeff Sessions, who's the US Attorney General, used the Bible to justify the separation of Mexican children from their families at the border, saying, and I quote, Persons who violate the law of our nation are subject to prosecution. I would cite you to the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command on Romans, in Romans 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained them for the purpose of order. This verse that he chose to use at this, in this occasion ironically was also used throughout the US in the history of the slave trade in, in promoting um, the acquiescence of slaves and preventing riots. This idea of respecting the order of the land and seeing the law of the land as the ultimate order to be adhered to has been used in oppression throughout history. So we know that the scriptures cannot simply be, can be used for manipulative purposes, for evil, even though we often as Christians see them used for good. So when it comes to politics and the scriptures, we have to be critical listeners, always asking ourselves, is this what Jesus really meant? We can't simply hear the reference to a scripture and assume that it's going to be reflective of the gospel. We always have to be asking ourselves, is this what we see in the heart of Christ, who we read about in the scriptures, and who we know and believe is resurrected if we are believers in Jesus? So it was a growing awareness of the brutal realities of our social and political life, as well as this awareness of Christ who came to set free the oppressed, that really started off my journey of understanding the political theology. It was in the course of my work as a community organiser as I got to know leaders, both lay and ordained, who were committed to doing something in their communities. It was school children, dads, working mums, retired people who were determined that they wanted to do something, that their faith should lead them to action, that began to convince me that actually maybe Jesus did have something to say about politics. Maybe the church had a political role to play, not simply a spiritual role. So I was convinced that I was wrong and had to redress some of my initial opinions and I'm going to take you through some of those thoughts as we explore this idea today. There is a kind of political engagement that I think we see that can appear to us to be quite godless. It's a kind of engagement that is characterised by the dehumanisation of other people who are seen as other. It's a kind of engagement that leads to pride and to ego and to holding on to power. And this has nothing to do with the gospel that we read about in the scriptures. And it is a trap that we as Christians can fall into as much as other people who are not of our faith. On the other hand, I'm convinced that political engagement can be done in a way that's attentive to Christ. 
in a way that is centered on the gospel and the honoring of God's creation. And this is what we're going to be exploring today. How our Christian faith and politics can come together in a way that exalts Christ and promotes the good news of Jesus. So I'm going to begin first of all by considering how politics and theology can relate to one another. When I tell people that the area of my work is in political theology, I normally get a sharp intake of breath because one of these things is tough enough to begin with on its own. Politics is complex, theology can be even more complex. And what kind of crazy person would try to bring these two things together? Well, I am one such person. Um, and so I'm going to begin a little bit by thinking about what does politics and theology have to do with each other? William Kavanagh writes the definition, and he's somebody who's thought a lot about these things of public life and, and theology. And he writes that theology is broadly understood as discourse about God and human persons as they relate to God. The political is broadly understood as the use of structural power to organise a society or community of people. Political theology is then the analysis and critique of political arrangements, including cultural, psychological, social and economic aspects, from the perspective of differing interpretations of God's ways with the world. So in other words, we need to begin by understanding what theology is about, which is about understanding who God is and how we can relate to him. And we also need to have an understanding of politics that is not simply about political structures in the, in the, kind of, in the, widest, in the widest sense, but about the way that we live together in community. So we need to understand who Jesus is, what he said and did, and while he walked the earth. And we also need to couple this with an understanding of politics that's been open to all of the, uh, to, uh, to all of us. Sorry. Now, many people write themselves out of politics because it's seen in, in often a quite narrow way. So when we think about Christian engagement with politics, we think, oh, I need to join the party and be elected as an MP or a local councillor. And in this way, politics is a very, a very narrow path that only few people have access to. We can't all be MPs. We can't all be councillors. We may not all want to be MPs or councillors. So what options are there for the rest of us, for those of us who are not going to become MPs or to become the Prime Minister? So we can think of politics in a broader way of, of, of the, about the way that our life is governed as communities and nations. Politics is not simply about government structures, but about the way we live together on our street, the life that we live in, in public together as citizens of the same place, of the same country, as people of the same community. Politics with a small P, as some might say, is about the governing of our life locally. It's about how we live together in community and relate to one another. It's about how decisions are made, about how our lives are governed and how we treat those who we find ourselves being next to in community. So for a society to function well, it needs its citizens to participate. And this is not just about voting, but it's about the governing of our common life. It's about the people in your church, the people at your workplace, being engaged in the shaping of the community that we share together. Ed Chambers, who's somebody who's done a lot of work on community organising, writes about the world as it should be. In the world as it should be, democracy means participation in public decisions in which all are included because of the dignity of being created equal. In the world as it is, democracy is dominated by the interests of a few wealthy and powerful institutions. 
So we have to think about what our democracy is like. How healthy is it? Is there opportunity for all to participate and to shape the life of what Aristotle calls the palace, which is where we get politics and politicians from, the life of our city? So if we bring this understanding of theology as exploring God and his ways with us, and we also have this broad understanding of politics, then this leads us to understanding of political theology, which is about what does God have to say about the ways in which we live together in our community? What are the ways in which God is leading us in our shared life together as citizens? And the question today of was Jesus political is does Jesus have anything to say about the way that we live in our lives together? If we break it down to a broader level, that's what the question is about. What is it that we see in the gospel, what do we see in Christ, that is leading us towards an understanding of how we should govern our life together as people in a particular place, in a community, in a shared space. And when we're thinking about discerning this, it is not simply about particular keywords that we see as political. So often when we're thinking about political theology, people will get onto biblegateway.co.uk and Google and put in the words politics or government or king and see all the scriptures that pop up in the scriptures about Caesar, about Herod, about government and all those kinds of things. But actually, if we think about the scriptures as the living word of God, as truth that is supposed to shape the way that we live as disciples of Christ, then that is something that becomes political because it shapes the way that we live in our wider community. When we take seriously even a smaller command to love your neighbour as yourself, even that that we may think is a spiritual truth has political implications. If we take seriously the idea of loving our neighbour, then what is that going to mean about the way that we conduct ourselves on, our, on the road where we live? How is that going to affect the way that we think about people who arrive in our community? How are we going to relate to power structures and to the vulnerable? Something that we can think is a very spiritual truth has huge implications for the way that we live socially and politically. And this is what political theology is trying to suggest, that actually all of the truth of the scriptures has an impact on the way that we are as people. It impacts the way that we, that we exist before God. It impacts how we understand God working with us. And so it's not only spiritual, but it's social and it's political. So in answer to the question of our topic today, was Jesus political? Obviously, you would have guessed by now, political theology says, yes, Jesus really is political. He's political for several reasons. Firstly, because he was alive as a person in a particular time and space. So he shares in that politicalness of being human, of being alive in a particular space. In the same way that all of us are political by nature of us being alive, Jesus was political. And we also should remember that whether we participate or not, we are having a political impact. So if we do not, if we choose not to be active, then our absence has an effect on the life of community. So it's not simply in our action, but in our inaction that we have an effect on our common life. So Jesus is political because he's alive at a particular time and space, impacting the common life of his time. He's political because he proclaims a kingdom that was at odds with the structures of power at the time. It is not the one that existed at the time under Caesar. He proclaims a kingdom whose king is God. And that has some conflict with the existing political structures. He's political because he's a son of God, and that's recognised not only by him but by other people. 
and he's, and he's set up as a, as a person of power in conflict with the powers that existed at the time. And we also can recognise the gospel as being a political message. Rather than seeing it simply as being personal or spiritual, the gospel is socially transformative. It's a message which declares God's intention to bring life to people and to nations and communities. And if Christ is political and the gospel is political, then the church inevitably also carries this mission. By nature of being an organised group of people with a capacity to shape public life, the church is inevitably political. If any of you are disappointed, I'm sorry, but it is. Not only when it launches into the typically political discussions, but by very nature of being a body of organised people. And it was also political due to the fact that the church is a gathering of disciples of Jesus, who in his in ministry, in his actions and in his word, was provoking a new way of thinking about what it was to be human and what it was to live in community. He found himself at odds with those in authority, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. So we'll dig now a little bit deeper into some of these ideas, Jesus being political and his gospel. So by being incarnate and born a human, Christ joins us in the way each of us is political, by sharing in the common life of his time. By nature of his birth, Christ is endowed with a political identity. He's giving a space within a political community and a social structure. He shares in the reality of our humanity and the things that we call political, whether to do with wealth, race, gender or education, were all aspects of his earthly life. So our understanding of Jesus must be focused on his humanity as well as on his divinity. It's important for us to recognise the embodiment of Christ as something very significant, that he shared in our experience in every way in eating, in drinking, in being tired, in having friends, in being bereaved, in, in engaging with the structures that existed at the time that he was living on the earth. God becomes flesh in Christ, and his flesh was of a particular colour, a particular gender, so he also, along with his incarnation, experiences what it was to be a person of that time, a Jewish man living under the oppression of the Romans. These are realities of Christ's lived experience. <clears throat> He's from a predominantly poor Jewish community. We know Christ was not from our wealthy family because on the day of his circumcision, his parents offered the sacrifice of a poor family. So we read in um, Leviticus where it says that if a person can't, when a woman has a baby and she has to go through the purification rites to be re-entered into community, she's supposed to offer a lamb, but if she can't afford that, she can offer pigeons or doves. And Mary, when they go to the temple, she offers pigeons or doves, so we know that they were not from a wealthy family. Jesus himself makes reference to having no place to lay his head, which isn't the kind of thing you say if you have a really nice mansion to live in when you go home at night. Jesus identifies himself with those who are poor, with those who are disenfranchised, those who are marginalised and forgotten, which is a core part of his identity as a person. These are real groups of people, so we don't need to spiritualise them. We can see, even in our contemporary time, groups of people who are forgotten, who are almost invisible to us. And in Matthew chapter 25, for example, where he talks about the Son of Man coming back in glory, he describes what will happen when he separates the sheep from the goats, the righteous on his right and the, the unrighteous on his left. 
It says, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus is clearly stating here that when you, you offer service and care to these groups of people who are often the ones who in our social life have least agency of their own, those who are in prison, those who are sick, think about those who are housebound, they're often the ones who are most isolated from society and from, from having a role in public life. Jesus identifies himself among these people, that when we care for them, he takes it as a personal act of worship to himself that we have cared for these people. Conversely, when we do not address the needs of the most vulnerable, of those who are ostracised, pushed to the side, deemed unworthy of having a role in our political life, he sees it as a rejection of himself, it later on says, those who didn't do that, he said, you saw me and you didn't do these things for me. So Jesus is political because of his humanity and because of the type of human experience that he chooses to take on in his incarnation. He's also political because he proclaims the coming of a brand new kingdom. The kingdom Christ came to proclaim is one where we as human beings follow Christ, whose life pointed to the Father. It's not about an upgrade of a slight tweak of the current way that we do things. It's a whole new order of our priorities and loves as human beings. It's a kingdom where the last are first and the first are last, which can make us uncomfortable depending on where we are in the scheme of things. Um, it's a kingdom where the aggressive strategist is passed over for the one who's like a child, where the confident self-starter is ignored and the meek are given the inheritance. It's an upside-down kingdom in comparison to the world as we know it. The Beatitudes for some represent a whole new constitution for the kingdom of God, a declaration of, and an e of this ethos of the kingdom and these new values. So this kingdom that Jesus proclaims clashes with the existing world order. Firstly, because it recognises Jesus as the Son of God, not Caesar. Caesar had this, was deified in his time, seen as a godlike figure and in some places referred to as the Son of God. And here Jesus is saying he's actually the Son of God and people declaring him to be the Messiah. By declare, he declares a new order of life which has social and political impact and he sets up God as an authority over Caesar. All of these elements of Christ's declaration of his preaching are conflicting with the order of the time. While Caesar is a ruler of Rome, Jesus considers himself to be ruled by a different king and with an allegiance to a different kingdom. He encourages people not to be focused on allegiance to this earthly kingdom over and above recognising God as Lord of all. So in Mark chapter 12, we see this common um, discussion about the coins where the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. And it says, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. 
Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. And this quote is often used to argue for a separation of things deemed sacred and things deemed secular. It's often argued that what Jesus he was saying is, you know, some of these things, you know, give them to Caesar, they're for him to rule over, and give other things to God because, you know, they're gods. But there's, an, there's another way of reading this, this scripture, because Jesus is holding a very specific thing, being a coin, and saying, actually, if Caesar wants to have this, let him have it, but actually, when it comes to giving to God what is God's, well, all things are God's. There is nothing that is outside of God's creation, outside of God's authority. So while Caesar may be arguing about coins, let him have them, actually, because the real kingdom is concerned with bigger questions. <coughs> the reaction of the Pharisees and Jewish leaders is evidence of the threat that Jesus posed. The Pharisees were both religious and political authorities. They planned to kill Jesus on many occasions. There's a constant throughout the Gospels and the Pharisees are trying to kill Jesus and the Pharisees are plotting to kill him throughout the scriptures. They attempt to discredit his preaching and his ministry on many occasions, calling him the prince of demons of all things, testing Jesus constantly looking for a sign of his power. None of this would have been necessary if he had fulfilled their expectations and sat within the status quo. But Jesus isn't having the kind of impact that the, Jewish, that the Jews were hoping for. He's not leading a violent rebellion and overthrowing the Romans, re-establishing Israel as a nation. Jesus is a disappointment to those who wanted both of these outcomes. He isn't playing into the religious and political expectations of his contemporaries. He maintains his commitment to the mission of God, which has political impact, but not in the way that it was hoped by some. He's consistently um, being consistent, he's been consistent in maintaining his allegiance to God and to the work that he's doing, both as in, in bringing new life to people and showing us how we should be citizens. In the time to come, as the church begins to grow and develop, the question of how to follow this political Jesus becomes even more complex as the context the church finds itself in begins to change. So now we consider the church as a political body. It's political for the same reasons that Christ is, for being a gathered group of people of political significance, for proclaiming Christ as a son of God and pledging allegiance to his authority above all other powers, by living in step with a kingdom that is different to any other earthly one, which causes conflict in some places with some of our existing norms and values. The church has always been called to be distinctive, People are known in the early church for being Christians because of the way they live together in community with one another, embracing Jews and Gentiles, male and female, slave and free. This word of ecclesia, which we translate to mean church, was a common word used at the time to describe gatherings of citizens. Um, they were both religious and political gatherings. It was a place where citizenship and worship came together, um, where they were intertwined. 
So the idea of gathering together would not have seemed to be a strange thing, but Paul is actually calling for a new kind of ecclesia, a new kind of gathering, where the allegiance is to Christ, not to Caesar, and the worship is going to God and to the resurrected Jesus, not to the Roman gods of the time. Well, when you, some of you know about Emperor Constantine, who had a conversion experience in 312 AD. And he was somebody who established Christianity as the official religion. So as Christianity had experienced persecution by, in different phases during the, during the era of Roman emperors, Constantine has a conversion experience and makes Christianity the religion of the empire of his time. And for the first time, the spiritual power of the church is combined with the political force of government. This seems for some to suggest that this hope of the church being recognised an authoritative community was finally happening. The church is finally being glorified for some people. However, what, what ensued was a loss of the identity of the church that we see in its beginning. The agenda of government, of war and politics and coercive power becomes mixed up with this message of this Christ who's resurrected. And then the original message of the gospel and the distinctiveness of the church becomes tarnished. The church becomes associated with power and with force, with things that previously had been seen as opposite to the church of the resurrected Christ. When we see from this that when church and political structures are combined uncritically, the damage to the church's witness can be catastrophic. And during this era, we see an increase in monastic communities, those who withdrew from the empire to preserve a, a kind of organic and pure form of the Christian faith that was free from the influence of the concerns of government. So the witness of the church is sharpened by its distinctiveness during Paul's time. It shows itself to be a very special kind of community that overcomes social divisions. We see this in the baptismal poem that was used that Paul quotes. In this alternative society, there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. The church has a strong sense of an identity that is very different to the world that surrounds it. While this distinctiveness has not always been recognised as positive, the church has often experienced persecution because of this distinctiveness. And in more recent history, we only have to think back to the role of the confessing church in Nazi Germany, where Karl Barth and the Byron Declaration is written as the established church in, under Nazi Germany becomes co-opted by the Nazis. We see the rise of the confessing church a group of people who, who could recognise a moving away from the gospel that was happening because of the allegiance to Nazism. So Karl Barth and a group of other theologians and leaders write this declaration in 1934 to declare the distinctiveness of the church and the gospel and allegiance to Christ above Nazi Germany. Throughout history we've seen these movements where the spirit of God has actually called the church back to itself and often at times in opposition to the state which has formed a form of faith that often leaves behind a lot of what we can see in the scriptures. So if we gather all of this together, then what are the possibilities today for us to think about engagement with, the, with politics? The truth is that political action can never be accidental, it must always be prepared for. Churches must prepare theologically but also practically for this kind of mission. We've touched on some of the theology so far, but there were also some very crucial practical elements. 
I think for local churches, as a, we need to be concerned and wary of being co-opted by government. Where the divine call and the mission of the church is lost and the church ends up filling the gaps of policy. The church is, is distinctively a servant of God who calls us to love a neighbour rather than an extended arm of the state. Now, of course, that means that there will be some overlap because we're often caring for vulnerable people. But the reason for this and the motivation for this comes out of the gospel, not because we feel like we have to prove our worth in the wider world. Okay. We must also... I'll wait for a second. We must also be aware of having an uncritical stance towards our engagement with government. It is often suggested that because of Paul's exaltation to pray for those in authority, that all we should do is pray. But actually there is a very clear prophetic role, and we see this throughout the Old Testament, of the prophets being willing to speak out prophetically to the government, to a levels of authority at all levels, not just nationally, but locally in our communities that the church has a prophetic role to call those in authority back to their purpose, to remind them of the dignity of all humans, the plight of the poor, and to preach a good news of hope and redemption. Before I started to work as a lecturer, I worked as a community organiser, and it was fascinating work because what we were trying to do was to encourage this kind of action among churches. And so as I was, when I worked with CTC, the Centre for Theology and Community, we would train churches using, using seven hallmarks. So we would actually say churches need to think deeply about if they themselves are organised and ready for action and engagement. And we created these seven hallmarks of what we called an organised church. The first one of these hallmarks is that the church integrates theology, spirituality and action. So in preaching, faith is connected to life, including public life and political issues. The congregation will see the reality of their experience and community celebrated in liturgy. There will be a, a connection between the worshipping life of the church and action beyond the walls of the church. The teaching and prayer ministries of the church will help members to integrate their faith with the practice of their daily lives, in their working life and their family life. And the congregation becomes confident in questioning the prevailing culture. Secondly, the church, a church that is organised for action, for political engagement, has a relational culture because relationships are the foundation of a congregation's life. It involves that both one-to-one -one connections where you hear the stories of those who you sit next to in church every week. But you begin to understand what, what their experience is of living in community. What it is that they're struggling with, what other things that they're enjoying. What skill sets they have, what their experience has lent them as men and women, and even as young people and children. Understanding the whole person and who they are as people living on your street, on your road, in your community. Thirdly, a church that is ready for action is constantly reorganising to renew its focus on people. This is about realising that so often as churches we get into rhythms of programmes and you can kind of memorise exactly what the schedule will be like for the whole year. And it can often be very similar every year. There's one story I heard of a church who had a committee for a particular thing and all the people had died on it and nobody knew because <laughs> you hadn't actually gone through the structures and checked. 
what was happening. It had just got into the rhythm of doing the same thing over and over again. But a commitment to reorganising, to questioning, why are we doing this? What needed is addressing? Who are we developing by doing this? Is crucial. So energy goes towards what is going to be fruitful and productive in the ministry of the church and in its, in its life within the community. Number four, leaders are being developed through public action at a sustainable pace. So this is that people who are confident in, in reading and in leading inside the church building also recognise they have a role to play beyond the church. That the walls of the church are porous, allowing people to enter and to leave and be the same person in both spaces. Power and responsibility are shared, which may make you nervous or happy, depending on where you are. This is about an, an active a development of lay leaders and a, a commitment to seeing people take on responsibility, to share the responsibility for deciding what's going to happen and contributing to life of the church so that, it do, so that it doesn't all rest on the few, so that the few people who are already doing everything that's happening don't also have an additional level now of thinking about community engagement, but there's a way of developing newer leaders. Number six, a church like this is instinctively ready to work with those beyond its walls. There's a cultivation of relationship with other churches, with other religious groups and non-religious groups, with schools and housing associations. There's a, a desire to be deeply involved in community life beyond the walls of the church. And number seven, the congregation is ready to tell and embody the Christian story. That this issue of social and political engagement becomes a natural extension of a deep understanding of the gospel. And there are a few things I want to leave with you in terms of conclusions when we think about political engagement from a Christ-centered and gospel standpoint. The first thing I would say is that the means is as important as the ends. We have to take seriously the commands of Jesus when we're fighting for justice, when we're engaging, when we're engaging politically. The, the command to love your enemy still stands, even when you can see them face to face. It's easier to think about that in the abstract, but when you're fighting for the vulnerable and somebody who you're working with doesn't seem to want it to happen, the command to love your enemy still remains. We can be so caught up in doing lots of stuff that we can actually forget about who we should be, who we should be as we're doing this good work. We need to remain attentive to God humble enough to listen to our neighbours, convicted enough to love those who are hard to love. It's easy to forget that how we get there is as important as wherever it is that we think we're going. If we pander to manipulative tactics that we think are strategically wise, but compromise on our character, then something we has gone amiss. Secondly, is that people are important and as much as possible should come before programme and project and agenda. God loves people like he really, really does. He really, really, really does. And often I think the idea of progress can overwhelm us and we forget about the loving of people. And we can think actually, although God says he loves people, what he really loves is success. Sometimes we can be tempted to stand on the heads of other people, or maybe the legs or other body parts, in an attempt to kind of reach higher up to the place where we want to go. Even in the area of ministry and social justice, 
competition, striving can overtake us. <coughs> Oops. And in our pursuit of the good, we must also remember the people that God has made who are also good. Finally, an important thing to remember to keep us all sane and sustained in our fight for justice and in our engagement is that this mission is God's mission, not ours. On the road to seeing the world change, there's always going to be more to be done. We are here for a short while to do what we can in the space where we are, to see the kingdom come, to witness to the gospel. And there's always going to be more to be done than there are hands to do it. But the trust that we have is that the work is God's and he who started a good work will complete it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Selena, and bang on time as well. Great. Um, we've got 20 minutes uh, in which we can have questions before we finish. Um, it, uh, we, we've got a question from here. Yeah, anyone else got a question? That we'll, yeah, we'll take a couple of questions at a time. So if we could have your questions first, please. Yeah. I'm sure Mrs. May would love to know the answer to that question. Um, question being, what, what difference would it make to have Christ sitting around the table in a political meeting? I mean, that's a very interesting question. And the question over here, sir. I was going to ask, um, you mentioned earlier about church and church being Yeah, that's a very good question. Thank you. Selena, you, if you'd like to use the mic for that okay. so people can hear. Um, so the second question is about the church is so busy being internally political that it's not actually engaging with the world outside, and what do we do about that? Just, just a couple of little questions, Selena, if you ponder on. Well... Um, Thank you for these very small questions. I'm very eager to answer. So, what difference would Christ make in a political meeting? So, I'm thinking about if you were a Christian MP, for example, what difference would that would that make? Um, I think that we have to be clear about the fact that our political structures are not Christian structures. They're just political structures that exist to help to govern our nation. And as a Christian person in that space, that your faith shapes the way that you are in that space, but may not necessarily shape everything that, every decision that you will make as a Christian leader in that space because of your role as an elected politician. And so I think it's important, and we've seen this even with, with some Christian MPs lately who have 
found it difficult to figure out how do they hold that space as a Christian because their role is representing their constituents, not necessarily representing their church when they're in that position. So it's a very difficult thing to manage. But I would say that as a Christian, a Christian person in that space would be able to draw on um, a sense of hopeful expectation as they engage with their role in politics, a sense of commitment to God, to truth and to justice, to, to what is right, and of course, these things are not you know, inherently just Christian. There are many politicians who are not Christians who have hope as well. But I think recognising Christ in the way that we've explored him today is something that I think could really shape the way that we engage with political discussion and debate. Um, and recognising him not as somebody who was at home in huge religious political structures, but somebody who found his way among the marginalised and the poor those who are ostracised and that should really be shaping the way that we understand Christ and who we should be as his followers. But that's not always something that translates easily into political decision making and political roles, which is why there is, I think, tension often for Christian politicians who have to make those kinds of decisions. Um, so that may not help at all. Uh, I think in terms of how can the church be political while it's infighting, this is the bane of my life, so I really don't know what the, what the answer is. Um, I mean, I would like to say that I think that there are always people who are doing stuff even while some are bickering and arguing. And I would say my ambition has always been to just go where stuff's happening and get involved, because there will always be that political infighting. I think as long as we're human and as long as we're alive, there will always be that bickering and internal politics. And we're never going to be able to stop that happening, unfortunately. Maybe I'm being pessimistic, or maybe I'm just being realistic. But I think it's just a natural thing where power is involved and institutions are involved. There goes the internal politics. And I would think that actually my joy has been to find pockets of people, even in the midst of that, who are committed to just putting that aside and acting. And I would say, find those people and hold on tight. <laughs> Can I follow that, that question up? Because I, I think there's a, there's a further dimension to that in relation to the church's own political power as an organisation. So we spend a lot of time squabbling between ourselves. But there's a question about how the church can be more ref self-reflective about how it exercises its political power within society. And one of the obvious ways is about safeguarding that we're running up against, the way the church has served its own interests and not the interests of people around it, not the interests of the poor. In, in your own experience of community organising, have you discovered ways in which you can help the church to, to reflect back to it and to consider again the ways in which it's misusing its political power? I think one of the most interesting things about organising was the their commitment to constant one-to-one -one conversations. And so when we would talk with leaders of churches who wanted to hear from people who were not part of their usual sphere of influence and have that reflected back to them, which is often what happened, it involved a commitment to listen to people who were not in the same world as you. Because often when you, if you speak to a lot of people who are you know, in that same kind of world in the church, it seems so normal what happens that it's almost difficult to even pinpoint exactly what it is that's not quite right sometimes. Um, but actually hearing the reflection from people who are not 
of that same space can really help in that process of evaluating how can we do things better. And so when we had churches come and spend some time with us as a centre, often some of that was also asking them questions about how does power function in your institution? We would do what we call a power analysis, which would be we would actually draw um, on a flip chart and write the names of people who had power in the organisation and actually figured out where the power actually lay, the decision-making power, the financial power, who had the key relationships. And it was really insightful to do that with people, for them to see on paper how power was distributed and then is there something in common with the people who have all the power, for example? Do you have to be a particular gender to have lots of power? Or maybe you have a lot of informal and relational power if you're a different kind of person. And so we began to kind of, but it takes um, exposing those kinds of things and uncomfortable conversations to be able to say, although our organisational structure says X, Y and Z, the reality of it is that this is the way that power is functioning. Um, and that's a really difficult conversation, but it's something quite important in terms of reflecting on the way power is being used. Thank you. Uh, further questions? Yes, gentleman here and gentleman over there. I grew up in South Africa and I, you know, I'm aware of a government which used the Bible to justify apartheid and so did the Dutch Reform Church, which totally acceptable to the church that I grew up in. But what worries me more about, I'm worried about churches having political power and controlling the state. But what worries me even more now is if this country disillusionment with politics in general, and the church is not really, at the most, they'll say go to vote, but I don't think they're actually taking a stand on really important issues. So what do you have to say about that? Okay, thank you. So how does the church, how can the church take a stand on current political issues, uh, rather than just saying it's your decision individually? On some point, things. On some things. How far should it be collective? Thank you. Oh, sorry, no, gentlemen over here, we come back to you on the next round of questions. Yeah. While I agree with where you're going, um, my question is that you're asking an anachronistic question. Is Jesus political? Because it was not a question he asked. So, and in terms of power, most of the power struggles that Jesus has engaged with are with Judaism, not with the state. So they are internal. So given the, those nuances, you're, especially when you talk about how does a church think outside the wall, what's the contribution of the church in a place like the UK where its presence is diminishing significantly? Numbers, the growing deconversion, the, the other religions, and is it appropriate to think Jesus as a political theologian, or maybe in the language of the late Graham, as a public theologian, so that a church, even with diminishing numbers and resources and credibility, still has a moral voice in society. Thank you. I'm not, that's. I'm just summarising the question for people on the video. I mean, that's quite a, a profound question about the, the, the nature of politics and prophecy 
and the, the, the role of the church within that, as I understand what you're asking. So if Jesus is, is it does not come with a political agenda for the, um, the Judean Independence Party, but he's seeking to bring in the kingdom of God. And what does that have to say about the way that we understand our relationship with political theology? Yes? And just a little caution about moving too quickly from Jesus to church, because Jesus wasn't a Christian. Yeah. And those are not synonyms. So how does one maintain Okay, so would you like to start with that question, because then it leads on to the other question, which is about what do we do now in relation to that contemplation about what Jesus was doing? Well, I think I would start by saying I don't, I think in the beginning what I was trying to do was expand our understanding of politics away from formal structures. So when I talk, when I talk about the Jewish leaders being political, I'm not thinking that they were involved in the state. I'm thinking that they, that they're authority was around the shaping of the community of the Jews, which is a communal and a broad understanding of what political is. So I think, I think probably public and political are interchangeable if I think about politics in that way. And that Jesus actually, um, and I think that the church as a congregation of people seeking to follow Christ um, is, is in my view recognizing that the, the truth of the gospel and the truth of the kingdom coming are, are bringing around a new order of what life looks like in community and in a in a gathered group of people. So while that doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to be overthrowing the government, it does mean that we're going to be, the way that we live in community together is going to be very distinctive. And some of that distinction is going to cause some conflict with the existing order, which is living according to a whole different set of values and interests. Um, I'm not sure if that answers the question. I feel like I may have got it a bit lost. <laughs> okay, thank you. And the other question is about the church taking a stand. So, for example, at General Synod next week, we're going to be debating uh, unilateral nuclear disarmament. Um, but the question is, how pointed is that debate going to be? And is it going to be just a general motherhood and apple pie debate, or is it going to be something which is very sharp in what it wants to say to the government? Is that the kind of question you're engaging with? So. How, how does the church know and how far should the church take particular stands on particular issues? Well, I think the church has to be careful in kind of talking about things without having a whole lot of expertise. That is, one, I think, one of the risks is that in some conversations we, can, we run the risk of um, not understanding the full nuance of the debate and the discussion, which I think can then undermine our witness. But I, what I think is very powerful is when there is a really thought through perspective on a political issue, a kind of big P political issue, um, that demonstrates that the gospel and the truth of the scriptures has something real to contribute to a debate. And I think that's something that the church can have confidence in. And that, that there's, there's you know, thinkers all over the world and from the church of a whole lot of different set of traditions exploring what the Christian faith contributes to all kinds of big P political discussions. So I think the church can be more confident in speaking more boldly um, about issues that it really feels very strongly about on the basis of its Christian conviction. Um, and I would love to see more of that, to be honest. For those, I think there are as we said, all kind of internal political issues, why that doesn't always happen. But I think it would be 
a great thing to see a more bold church speaking in public conversations personally. Thank you. Um, so, gentlemen at the back, and then the lady here, please. Yeah. Uh, and thank you very much. Uh, looking back and comparing this period with uh, previous periods, there's an incredible lack of assertive and decisive contributing individuals on critical subjects in the church. In the interwar period, there was a huge contribution by the temple, by St. Martin, and even in the post-war period, there was right here in this Thank you. Yeah, uh, that's more of a comment than a question. But I mean, it's, it's a. But, but it. it okay. So, so, so it's how do we get some outstanding individuals to engage with these things and not simply say we have a bland overall church sort of view which pleases everyone and does nothing or doesn't please anyone. Uh, and lady here, yeah.
Okay, th thank you. So, so, so that, that's, that, that, those are again two sides of the question about how do you encourage individuals to get involved, but also how do you encourage individuals who don't want to get involved? How do you get a church which is not engaged to actually become engaged? Um, so like in terms of encouraging people who are not really interested, again, maybe I'm too young to be so cynical, <laughs> but I do just think you can't change the fundamental interest of a person. Um, and you can, you know, little by little try to persuade them, but it takes a lot of energy. And I think in a way, when you're talking about just getting on with it, I think that's a really amazing thing. And using the way that you have influence with the people you know to encourage them, and maybe one day someone will come along with you to a protest, and that'll be a little bit of a win. And I think people who are leaders in congregations have the same ability to, you know, drop things in sermons, provoke people a little bit, you know, draw in conversations in church circles, in small groups, and just get people to understand that these things are connected, that their faith is not separate from the rest of the world. I think that's quite crucial. Um, how do we develop more people, more individuals? I think the more people who do it, it might catch on. <laughs> I don't know how much you can poke somebody, You'll, that's a lot of poking to be well, doing. Not in accordance with the Cathedral's working group report. No, they couldn't. I think you're probably right about that. Well, you have to sometimes be prepared to forego formal recognition in pursuit of something greater, I think. Um, the cathedrals are no longer repositories for awkward people. At least I don't think they are. Um, hopefully not, if I'm running one. Just one last question from over there. Thank you. Thank you. Political power or political influence or both? Mm. I mean, I think that political influence is the more exciting thing. If political power is about position, then that can get quite boring and repetitive and also ties you to a certain level of things you can and can't do and things you can and can't say. I think influence is the more exciting thing. So I would always encourage the church towards that. Thank you very much, Joel. Um, thank you very much for coming along this afternoon. There are more questions, I know, than we've had a chance to answer, but do come and have a chat with Selina afterwards, and um, she'll give you an answer to your question, although, we, of course, we have to pursue the answers together, don't we? Um, they do say religion and politics are two things that you shouldn't really talk about in the same breath. Um, so, Selina, it's been very brave of you to help us think about those things. And the agenda is, as we know, absolutely massive, and it's something which we are also seeking to pursue here, and a number of the questions that have already been raised here at St Paul's, and uh, we'll continue to do so, and it'd be good to keep in touch about how we might do that better. Um, but we thank you very much indeed for coming thank along.